The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Luke chapter 8. We'll be in Luke chapter 8 this morning. While you're doing that, a couple of quick announcements. Uh, this Tuesday morning, we're going to have morning worship over here at The Hub, 6.30 a.m. to 7.15. Mike Daniels is going to be leading us in that. So uh, if you want to uh, plan to come and join us, start out your day in worship, just spending some time with the Lord. It's going to be a great time. 6.30 till 7.15 this Tuesday morning. And then also today, we have pastor's coffee right after service in the coffee shop right over there. So if you are new or new-ish to Heritage, um, it's a great opportunity for us to get to meet you, for you to be able to ask questions, meet the rest of the staff. We would love to be able to spend some time with you, and we won't keep you very long, I promise. Um, you won't end up at the back of the line at the restaurant or whatever. So uh, we'd love to see you out there in the coffee shop. For right now, we're in Luke chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high and wave it around. We'll make sure that you get one. This is a pretty interesting story. You're going to want to track with us today. And yeah, I'm going to do it. Sorry. But will you join me on your feet for the reading of God's word as we read our text together this morning? We're going to start for context's sake in verse 22. Um, So we'll be reading Luke 8, 22 through 39. And the word of God says this. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let's go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and raging waves, and they ceased. And there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this? That he commands even the winds and water to obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let him enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. But the man from whom the demon had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home 
and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you this morning for this word, for this text. We thank you for your spirit. And we pray, Lord, just as Sam just prayed, God, may you work through us. May your spirit move in this room, Lord. May you break chains. May you set captives free. May we leave this place closer to you, more like you, and more free from the wiles of the enemy than we were when we came in. May your spirit just move in this place, God. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We got quite a story today. We get to talk about some weird stuff. You guys down? But it's important stuff because it's biblical stuff. So here we are in Luke chapter 8. Now, Jesus has been dealing with multitudes of people and he's exhausted. If you guys remember the story, we looked at it a little bit last week. These villages that Jesus is going around and speaking at where, where this stuff's happening, the villages all around really that whole Sea of Galilee area there, um, very small. It's an agrarian area. People are all farmers and the like and, and really small villages. A big village there would be 100 people. And so what's crazy about what's happening is that though these tiny little villages along this lake, 100 people here, 50 people there, 100 people there or less, Jesus is drawing crowds of the thousands. Like people are coming by the thousands to hear him teach. And, and they're really pressing upon him. You remember there's one story where he does ministry all day and there's all these people around him and then he goes to leave that and go into his home and the crowds came with him and they press in on him to the point that he can't even eat, it says. And his family's worried about him. Like they're looking at him. Uh, um, if you take the words that they say and you give them a little bit of credit, then they're looking at him. They're going, man, Jesus, this is crazy what you're doing. You're not going to be able to keep up with this. We've got to save him from himself because this is getting out of hand. Or worst case scenario, they're like, he's lost his mind. These crowds have gone to his head. Who does he think he is? Which is an interesting question that's going to come up a couple of times in our text today. And so Jesus is doing all this stuff. There's this constant pressing on him, this constant ministry taking place, but he's fully God and fully man. So though he is strong, don't think that he is somehow a superman that, that doesn't get tired. He's very human. And so he gets tired and they get in this boat and they make their way across the lake. And you know he's tired because he's in this little wooden boat with 13 people and yet falls asleep in this tiny little boat as they're making their way across. Not just falls asleep in this little crowded boat, but during a storm. And remember we looked at it last week. He rebukes the storm, which doesn't just mean like he stood up and said, okay, now calm, and then things just kind of slowly dissipated away and it went calm. No, when he rebukes the storm, it means he went, stop it, and it just stops. And the water goes glass, the wind is gone. The text says the disciples are afraid. And they're looking at him and they say, who is this that even the wind obeys him? And it's like they have this framework where they understand, it kind of makes sense to them to have this, this Messiah who can, 
heal sicknesses, who can cast out demons, who can do these different things. Like somehow their framework, the way that they look at things that like that makes sense, that that works for them. They can kind of deal with it. But then when this happens, like when he speaks and water goes flat and wind stops, that just blows all their paradigms apart. And they're just like, wow, who is this that even the wind is obeying him? Like they're stunned. And so as this boat comes to the shore, something crazy then happens again. It says in verse 26, when they sailed to the country of the garrisons, which is on the opposite side of the lake, the opposite of Galilee, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. Now, a couple of things we need to think about and, and address here. First is this. Again, Jesus is pushing boundaries of what is acceptable for a good religious, let's say, churchy type person to do. And Jesus does this all the time, right? He's hanging out with tax collectors and the religious people look at him and they're like, what is he doing? Why is he with them? And then he's with some religious people and then the woman comes in, the unclean woman who had been forgiven of all these things and she's, she's down at his feet, washing his feet and they're looking at him and they're like, man, if he knew who this lady was, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. Like Jesus is always kind of pushing those boundaries and he's really doing it this time because this area that he's going into, man, it's a really crazy place. He's in Gentile territory, he's among the tombs, and he's among pigs. Those are significant things that are actually taking place right here, very significant things. So think of it this way. Religious, moral, or, or ceremonial law had certain rules that would set the people of Israel apart from the other nations. Sometimes because the practices of other nations and, and the things that were associated with paganism in these other lands and God wants people to be separate. Sometimes just to, to set them apart in general. But there's different things ceremonially that they weren't allowed to be a part of. In addition to that, religious people in that day, they kind of had this belief that like if you would rub against even a sinful person or an unclean person, that's the phrase that keeps coming up over and over, this unclean spirit, this unclean person, it was like you would get some on you. And so like even the religious guys, the religious leaders, as they would walk through the markets, they'd pull their coats tight amongst themselves as they walked in so that not even their coat would rub up against someone that is unclean. And the reason they would do that is because if they did become unclean, then they had to go through all these ceremonies, all these processes, be cleansed, go back to the religious guys, be declared clean again. There was like all these processes. They had to clean themselves up to make themselves clean again. And so they would see some of the things that Jesus did, and they're just like, what is he doing? No real follower of God would do that. What is he doing among these people? And so here he is. First of all, he's in Gentile territory. It's a big no-no. Because the Jewish people, they were supposed to be a missionary nation. They were a group of people who had been given the favor of God. They'd received God's law. They were, they were God's people, but it was supposed to be for the purpose of using the favor they had received from God to be missionaries to the other people of the world so that the other nations of the world would learn who God is. But instead, it kind of went to their head. And so instead of being just people who'd received God's favor, they started living as if they're God's favorites. And so they're separate from everyone else. And now here you have these Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. We don't want anything to do with them. But now Jesus goes to that land. You also have, he's among the tombs. We're going to see about this guy that's around the tombs. You don't go anywhere near these dead bodies or anything like that. If you're a good Jewish religious person, you have no, no place there. 
And then you're going to see there's these herds of swine, these pigs, which are ceremonially unclean animals. They're not allowed, the Jewish people, to be part of that. Uh, Many people believe that that's part of pagan religious either sacrifices or just their economic growth. But there's tons and tons of pigs on this hill. Mark's account says some 2,000 pigs that are over there. So there's all these things going on, not to mention a man who is possessed by unclean spirits. So here's Jesus pushing these boundaries again. For the sake of saving. Like he's constantly pushing to go out there. And church, we have to remember to do this. We have to push against ourselves. This temptation to be insular, to withdraw from people outside. And we need to understand that light in a room of light doesn't do a whole lot of good. We already have light. That this light is given that it might go out into the darkness and spread the love of God to the lost people. Jesus is pushing these boundaries. He's making his way out there among them for the purpose of saving them. And then there's some weird stuff that goes on that we do have to deal with because the Bible does. The Bible teaches us that, that mankind has, has three distinct uh, uh, parts that we're made up of, if you will. We're made up of body, mind, and soul. And we kind of know how to deal with two of them, and we're not so good at dealing with the third. So if the body breaks, if we're sick, well, we have medicines, we have therapy, we'll treat a broken body by prescribing these things to it. We have surgeries that can fix it. We know how to deal with broken body. If it's the mind, maybe we go, okay, well then we'll treat that with new ideas or new philosophies or self-help or advice or counseling. We can deal with those things. But what do you do with a broken spirit? What do you do with this stuff? We don't know how to deal with this idea of this spiritual world or the soul or any of these sorts of thing. And, and in this particular case, you've got this guy who has now become so oppressed because of this spiritual attack that's happened on him. Physically, he's not treatable. He can't even be restrained. He's completely out of control. Mentally, he's outside of his mind, it says. So you can't speak some new philosophy to him and coach him out of the situation that he's in. The issue that's going on is real, and it's a spiritual one. It's the kind of the part of our body that we might overlook the most and might be the most important for us to pay attention to. Like There's real spiritual things that are happening around us all the time. We here, because we believe the Bible, we believe in the devil. We believe in demons. We believe in all of these things because the Bible teaches it and Jesus confirms it in the gospels as well. There are real things called demons, fallen angels that were created by God in perfection, but, but rebelled against God because of their pride and their desire to be number one, their desire to be Lord. And God evicted them out of heaven. A war breaks out. They're evicted out of heaven, led by this, you might say, general, but still also created one that we refer to as Satan or the serpent. And they're evicted out of heaven. And the battlefield now is here. It's here at earth. It's all around us. These things are going on all the time. And Satan, we believe, because the Bible teaches it and Jesus confirms it, is a real being. He's real. He's a created being. So he is 
far uh, below God. He is not an equal. Don't, don't think of it as like good versus evil as if there's some sort of yin-yang equality to it. That's not the case at all. God created Satan. He is a created one. Satan is not omniscient. He is not omnipotent. He is very weak compared to God himself, but he does have power. He is on the prowl. He does attack, and we do need to be aware of the things that go on. We need to be aware of the realities of, of these um, satanic influences that go on around us beyond just silly horror movies or things. We need to understand the reality of who Satan is and what Satan does. And one of the things that's going to happen in this text in just a little while is say, Jesus is going to say to this man, tell me your name. He's going to force the demons in this man to kind of name themselves. And in that day, there was this kind of belief that if you had that person's name, it's like you had a certain amount of authority or hold on them and their identity. So, so maybe to help us understand the reality of who Satan is and what he's trying to do and shed some light on what's happening in this story, it'd be good for us to understand that with regard to the names that the Bible uses to refer to Satan. So here's a few of them. This is what the scriptures tell us about Satan. Number one, Satan is the accuser. Satan is constantly accusing. Now there's a sense in which Satan is accusing us before God. You might say Jesus is our defender, but Satan is also accusing you all the time. He's in your ear and he has been for years, hasn't he? Saying things like, you're not good enough. Are you kidding me? You think God loves you? You know who you are. You know you can't go before God. You're going to church today after what you did last night? Boy, you better shower twice. You're not good enough. You need to do more. All these other people in this church, just look around at them. Look at all these holy people that worship, and you're nothing like them. Who are you fooling? Satan's constantly telling people they're not good enough to come before God. Or he's telling you that you're so good you don't need him. One of the other. But he is constantly accusing us. The second name, he's our adversary. This, this seems basic and unnecessary, but understand this. He's against you. He's opposed to you. You are not neutral to him. He is against you. We have to remember this, that when Satan wants to tempt us, it is not benign. That he is against you, especially those who are the people of God. But he's trying to destroy everyone. And that leads to the next one he's referred to in scripture as the destroyer. Jesus himself said, Satan comes to kill, rob, and destroy. He wants to destroy marriages. He wants to destroy relationships. He wants to destroy reputations. He wants to destroy churches. He wants to break things down. God is a builder and a creator. Satan is a destroyer who wants to bring chaos and destruction. We need to remember that. Little temptations that come our way, the purpose is he's trying to destroy us. And it's not like, oh, but this is kind of okay. This is kind of harmless. No, his goal when he puts anything in front of you is to destroy you but also to deceive you. He's the deceiver, the scriptures say. He wants to convince you of something that's not true. And he's been doing it since Genesis, especially with regard to God's word. He wants to fool you and make you believe that God's word isn't true or dependable or something that we can trust. It's what he did with Eve, right? He said, are you sure God said that? Eve, and God's not a really good father to you. God, God actually knows 
that that tree holds something amazing and he's holding out on you. There's better for you out there. And I know you think that you're here, but actually if you had that, you would actually even be equal with him to some degree and you don't need to stay in this place. God's just being selfish and he's holding out on you like constantly trying to deceive and he does it all the time. And he's doing it in the world all around us to this day. Is that really what God said? Is that really what the scriptures say? Now, we need to do our best to faithfully and rightly interpret the word of God, but we also need to understand that throughout the scriptures, even in the temptation of Jesus, over and over and over, Satan wants to deceive us and to convince us to believe a lie. And sometimes the lie he tries to convince us is true, is that he doesn't actually even exist. Remember the movie? The greatest trick the devil ever did is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. He's a deceiver. Which leads to the next one. He's a father of lies. He's only a liar from the beginning. When the scripture says, thou shalt not lie, it's almost as if the scripture is saying, look, God is truth. He is the truth. The scriptures say about Jesus, lies, that is like a demonic language. He says, don't lie, don't buy into that, don't be part of that. And Satan is constantly lying to us. He wants us to build our life on lies because he knows that if we do that, then the destruction that he seeks is inevitable. So he wants to deceive you, convince you lies are true, and he wants you to build your life on it. And sometimes it's so amazing, it can seem so right. Doesn't the scripture say he masquerades as an angel of light, that there's times when it just looks good, but it's different than what God said, and he's like, no, you can trust this, because he's a liar. He's the tempter in scripture. When you are tempted to sin, it's important to realize right then that that's a demonic battle taking place right there. That it's not just like, oh, there's a thing in front of me that's kind of neutral and it's not that big a deal. There's, there's something behind that. There is a literal demonic attack taking place when, when those things are put before us. He's luring you somewhere. The scriptures also tell us that he's a murderer. God is the author of life, and Satan is hell-bent on death. He wants you to die. He wants me to die. He wants unborn babies to die. He wanted Jesus to die. He is hell-bent on death. And I just, even when I come to this every time, I can't help but tell this story. I haven't told it in a long time. I guess technically that's not true. I told it about an hour ago. But I <clears throat> haven't told it to you guys in a long time. Um, this buddy of mine growing up, I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, I had a cousin that lived out in the country outside of Asheville, North, North Carolina in Candler. Candler, North Carolina is where he lived. And I loved going out there because it was just more fun. It, his parents let us get away with stuff that my parents didn't. And so we'd go out in the woods with BB guns and shoot everything from birds to cows to each other. And, um, and it was just like fun place for boys to just go be boys, Right. And there was this guy named Mark Smathers that lived right across the road from him. And you have to understand, guys, this place was like as Norman Rockwell, Southern, churchy, Bible Belt as it could possibly get. Like just 
gravel road right down the middle. Everybody lived on each side of this one gravel road. At the end of the gravel road, there's this church, Piney Mountain Methodist Church. At the end of this road, there's a big cemetery right there. Speaking of the tombs, there's a cemetery there. And uh, uh, Mark's dad lived across the way. They, they lived right across from where my cousin did. Mark's dad had the riding lawnmower, so he mowed the grass there. I can remember many, many times him driving that riding lawnmower out there. And me and my cousin and Mark, we'd go out there with these, these little BB guns and just, just had a blast. And Mark, as he grew up, he was really kind of following in his father's footsteps. He was like living that classic Norman Rockwell kind of dream. Um, married his high school sweetheart, became a teacher just like dad, bought a house on the same road, going to the still, going to the same church. Like it was like, it was like classic. It was almost like Little House on the Prairie with cars. And then somewhere along the line, he believed a lie. He got deceived, and then that lie came out, and it brought stress and devastation and destruction to his family, and he and his wife separated, and then that starts to get out, which is a problem in a neighborhood like that, because you're in the Bible Belt, man. You don't separate from your wife, and then gossip starts, because church people from the beginning of time have been doing that, and it became really difficult. Mark ended up with depression. He and his wife tried to work it out, come back together, didn't work out, splitting again, and it didn't just lead with like, oh good, I messed up his marriage. Or oh good, I messed up his reputation in the church. It ended with Mark in a basement with a gun that wasn't a BB gun. And Mark's dead. He's gone. And Satan rejoiced when that happened. Like that's the goal. He wants to kill you. And that's real. Like it's amazing how we don't think about that when the temptations come. I don't but we should. That's what he's trying to do. And it always starts with those little decisions. Eh, I'm tempted to chase a rabbit trail, but I won't right now. Let's just stick with the names. Look at the next one. The evil one. The devastation and sin and suffering that has been taking place since the beginning of time is not random. It has roots. Every war we've seen in human history is actually a spinoff of the greater war that's been going on from the very beginning. You ever just thought about the fact, like, come on, earth, for thousands of years, we've tried every form of government, we've tried every legal system, we've tried all the economic systems. You would think, over time, we would evolve and figure out how to do all this kind of stuff without. But it doesn't happen. If anything, it seems like sometimes the wars just get worse. Why? Because it's more than just us. There is an enemy behind all of this, and that's the last one. He is our enemy. He is our enemy. Don't don't just think of like Satan is an enemy of God. No, 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 no. Even you, if only because the Bible says you were created in the image of God. Like think about that. There's something about you that when Satan looks at, reminds him of God. And he's not having it. He is our enemy. And then you go, oh, well, that explains it all. So everything I've done, it's all his fault. It's all his fault. No, we do have a real enemy. He is really tempting us. All those things are real, but we are responsible, the Bible tells us. That's why we need to understand this stuff, because we are responsible for our choices. What ends up happening is we believe his lies, we fall prey to his temptation, and then we end up being taken captive by these different sins. We are captive in an actual war. He takes us prisoner. This happens all the time. 
And you go, oh, well, that's terrible news. What do we do? Well, that's the beauty of Luke chapter four when Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's why Jesus came. Because our enemy is real. And our ability to stand against him is not so good. So yes, we have an enemy. But greater still, we have a savior. Amen, church? This is who Jesus is. So now consider our narrative. He's exhausted. He makes his way across the lake, coming to a Gentile area, already pushing boundaries of who he's to be associated with, and of all the people that should come to greet him there on the shore, this man comes, this demoniac, this man that is, is possessed by multiple demons. It comes and approaches him. Now this would be a guy, especially in a place like that, that everyone would know. Like, this guy would be infamous. This would be the guy that any of you who are responsible parents would be like, kids, stay away from him. I mean, he wouldn't be hard to spot. He's naked in the cemetery. But still, son, stay away from him. And they've tried to control him. They've tried to imprison him. They've tried to bind him up. They've tried to deal with him to put him away. And it doesn't happen. He's, he's supernaturally breaking these chains. And they can't get free. And they don't really know what to do with him. And so he's just, well, just leave him out there in the tombstone. Leave him out there around the tombs, whatever. And that's where he is. And he comes and begins to approach Jesus. And let me just, let me just warn you of something right now. It's really easy at this point in the story to go, yeah, but that's what happened a long time. That's old stuff. That doesn't happen anymore today. And that is not true. It's just not true. Satan still oppresses. Satan still possesses. These things still happen. The demonic activity and those kind of things is absolutely real. Um, I, I've told a story once. Me and Justin, uh, who's one of the guys here at our church, we were delivering some gifts and food for a holiday um, program thing for the church one time. Went to this gal's house. Um, that lived over off Columbus. I don't know how we got her address. Don't have any clue who she was or any of that kind of stuff. And she looked like a single mom, probably had some kids there. And we go in with these gifts, with this food and all this stuff. And we bring it in to give it to this gal. And she's excited and she's ecstatic. And she's like kind of higher octave, if you will, voice or whatever. And she's like, oh, thank you. And just, uh, it was like this cool, fun, joyous time. We give the gifts to the kids. It's great. And then at one point, we're kind of winding down our little visit there. And I said, hey, so um, can, I, can I pray for you guys before we go? And I'm, I'm not exaggerating this. Like, it shifted in a way that made the hairs on the back of your neck just stand up. And her voice went from, oh, thank you for the gifts, to no. And her eyes got massive, and she looked terrified. Terrified. And she was getting her kids behind her. It was like... And we're just standing there like, what is going on? And she's like, you can go now. And hiding her kids, like literally putting them back behind her like this. So we go walking out of the house and I'm like, wow. And Justin's like, did you see that? And I'm like, did I see that? Are you kidding me? So we go in the car and we're like, oh, well, man, we should pray for her from here. And, we, and Justin goes, look, look, look. And I look out the window and, and she's there at the window of the house and she's got the blinds or the, the curtains pulled back and she's like this and looks terrified and just barely creaking them back and like watching us to make sure we pulled out of her driveway. So we're just like, man, we need to pray for her. Something's up. Or talk to people who have like drug addictions. Like a lot of times people just go, oh, but that's because they were high. They were hallucinating or whatever. I'm telling you, you talk to some people that have been delivered and set free from really hardcore drug addictions and they'll tell you some stories and they're like, look, I, I know the difference between a drug hallucination and what I saw and that was different. 
Like those stories still exist. And actually, Satan attacks way more often than we want to realize. The, the problem is, is that we have this way of taking a lot of the things that Satan, supernatural, demonic affliction that takes place, and we want to write it off as just normal things instead of recognizing what's behind them. And so in this, you got Satan who's possessing this guy and trying to destroy him, but a guy who's destroying his family because of a pornography addiction, we, we don't understand what's behind that. We don't think about the fact that Satan's still behind that too. And how many times Satan will take little bitty things and build, whether it be addictions or dependencies or, or things that sometimes you see someone do and you think to yourself, are they crazy? Why would they destroy themselves like that? Are they crazy? Why would they destroy their families like that? Why would someone do that? And I'm telling you, way more than we want to realize or give credit to, it's because of stuff like this right here. We just write it off as normal. We have excuses for it. But this is not true. This demonic activity absolutely happens. It still takes place. Not all demonic activity is head spinning around like the exorcist. A lot of it looks really normal. But the roots are the ends of it, I should say, are the same. Destruction and death and Satan celebrating when this takes place. So don't read this story as if it's something that doesn't happen anymore. In fact, I'm going to make the argument that you and I are exactly like this guy in this story. More so than maybe we've ever considered. So Jesus comes to the shore. And this guy comes. Verse 28. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Listen, this is why we need Jesus to be a part of everything we deal with, whether it be body, mind, or spirit. We need Jesus in recovery programs, and we should have Jesus in our doctor's offices because he is the one that deals with, he's our healer, he's our great physician. But anything that we are actually dealing with that can be or is actual demonic affliction, that's who we need to fix it is Jesus. Look at their reaction to him. Like these demons see him and they're, this is not like some sort of puffed up bravado where the demon sees his enemy and he's like, okay, let's do this. You want some? Like that's not what's happening here. This is terror. Like they know who Jesus is and look what they call him. What have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. Think about that. This is one of the, the best one of the most detailed descriptions or proclamations of who Jesus actually is in all of the Gospels. And it's made by a demon. You know why? Because demons have great theology. They do. Demons have better understanding of theology than we do. They know exactly who he is. Satan knew exactly who Jesus was in Matthew 4. He calls him son of God as well. Demons know exactly who he is. They have a great theology. They understand all those things. They're just at war with him. So their lives are opposed to the actual God that they're actually proclaiming. And that should be a huge thing for us to think about. Take a look at what James says in James chapter 2. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is kind of like sarcasm in this. Oh, you believe in God? Okay, good for you. So do the demons. 
and at least they shudder. Like, this is what he means. This is in the context of the book of James, where James is, is arguing that true saving faith will be accompanied by works. Not that we are saved by our works, but he's arguing that true saving faith, someone who has genuinely given their heart to Jesus and the spirit of God has now come into their lives, that their life is going to look a certain way. It's going to do certain things. And he's upholding these works as evidence of salvation and something that we should actually consider. And in this particular verse, what he's saying right here is, look, demons know exactly who Jesus is. And at least they have a physical reaction or response to that identity. It's shuddering. It's fear. And why is it fear? Because they know where they're going. There's no salvation for demons. They know where they're going. They know the end. They say it here in the text. Please don't cast us into the abyss. Demons understand where their final destination is. They understand who Jesus is. They understand who their final destination is. But they are rebelling and kicking and screaming against him the whole way. Their lives are given to oppose Jesus. Now think about this. How many people, maybe even walking in this room, know who Jesus is? But yet your life, except for Sunday for two hours, your life is in no way in line with or congruent with anything that Jesus calls you to live by. And then maybe the more scary part is, is that because you're here and because of religion and religious activity and maybe because of the way you're raised, so many people in that way can actually live in such a way that they're totally opposed to God, but they know who Jesus is. They have a, a basic belief in Jesus. They know who he is, but they're not living, their whole life is opposed to him, but yet still they're convinced that they're actually going to heaven instead. And that is a terrifying place to be. That's, we said it, I think, just last week, didn't we? That if you're not a believer in Jesus, sometimes if you're a religious person, church can be a dangerous place to be because you can convince yourself that you're okay and then go out the rest of the week and live as if a different God is your God. You can live against him. You've got allegiances and ways of living that are against God in many different ways. When Satan tempts you, I love how Russell Moore actually put it. When Satan's tempting us, it's not just like he's trying to trick us. Russell Moore actually says, Satan's trying to adopt you. He's trying to get you to understand or make you think. You don't have a good father. Your dad's not taking care of you. Your life won't be life if you don't have these things. And he's trying to lure you away from depending on the God of life. And he's luring you towards what he hopes will be your eventual death. And what he's doing is when he's leaving those temptations before us and we start to bite on those things, we're actually taking, whether we know it or not, allegiances towards him and becoming captives in that greater war. That's what's taking place there. And for some people, they're living that way every single day, completely opposed to God. Like if, if, if someone didn't know much about them at all and just watched their life throughout the week, would they look at them and go, man, they, yeah, they're a Christian. You can tell, look how they live. Like there's so many people that don't look like that at all, but they're going to church on Sunday. They've been raised a certain way. So they have an intellectual knowledge of who God is. They would even claim, I believe in God, but they live in no way in line with the actual Lord of the universe. And then yet because of all of those beliefs, they actually are convinced they're going to a good place in the end. And that's a terrifying position to be in. 
That's why we should never be ashamed of calling people to, to make sure. Like I'm not trying to make people question their salvation. I'm trying to make people be certain of their salvation. Be sure. And if you're here today, if, whether you're the complete pagan that has never had anything to do with God or whether you're the religious person that is so convinced that you're okay but you know in your heart that you are not living for Jesus, you know for, you know for a fact in your heart that he's not your Lord. You've never given your life to him. You've never given your heart to him. And if you're in either one of those camps, man, you need to meditate on this stuff while we're talking today. This is a big deal. This stuff is real. But there's such good news. While there is no salvation for demons, there is salvation for us. Because Jesus is, even in this story, eventually making his way to the cross, where the price of every one of those sins and rebellions is going to be put on the shoulders of Jesus, and he's going to die. He's going to take on the punishment that we deserve. The death that Satan's trying to lead us to, the scripture says the wages of our sin is death. Jesus took it and died. And then rose again on the third day, defeating death, triumphing over sin and death. And he says, now, repent of that stuff, man. Repent of that false religious stuff where you think you've got it together without me. And repent of all of these times that you and your pride and your lusts and all those kind of things have sworn allegiances, whether you realize it or not, to the enemy. Repent of all of those things and give your life to me. Follow me. For those who will do that, even today, you can be free today. You don't have to be prisoners in that war anymore. And that is good news. Amen? Those of you that have been set free by Jesus, testify, right? Was that good news? That's good news. Amen? All right. 8.30 was louder than you. I'm just telling you. And you got an extra sleep. Salvation has been made possible. Verse 30, Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Legion is a, a military term. A legion in that day would be an army of 5,600 soldiers. And so some people want to equate that and go, well, he's clear that means there's 5,600 demons in him. I, I don't know. I know this, demons lie. <laughs> so, so whatever it is, it's plural. Doesn't really matter exactly how many are in there, but this dude's riddled with them, right? Can we can all agree with that, Correct. And so verse 31, and they begged of him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. This, this part used to make me a little sad. I'm not going to lie when I was a kid. Large herd of pigs feeding there on the hillside, just minding their own little piggy business. You got to remember Miss Piggy, like we grew up with her, right? So they're feeding on the hillside, begged him to let them enter these. You PETA people are going to love this part. So he gave them permission and the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. I always thought, well, that's not fair. Poor little piggies just sitting over there. We even had stores back where I'm from, Piggly Wiggly. Like that just, how innocent is that sound, right? Now, actually, uh, um, there's a, a commentator named Daryl Bach who, who he, actually, he actually believes, and this is interesting to think on. Um, he thinks, hey, that, no, this is, this is Jesus pronouncing his sovereignty and his judgment over even the gods of this place. Because whether these pigs were part of a sacrificial system, which was part of this kind of pagan worship in some of those areas, or whether it was an economic system that they were living on, in either way, it was still opposed to the word of God, Jewish or not. 
And so here's Jesus, the embodiment of the law, the embodiment of the prophets. And in doing this, he's not only casting out demons, but he's throwing, if you will, judgment upon even the livelihood of these people and showing them that like, don't base your life on any of these kinds of things. And so the pigs go and you go, well, that seems, Jeff, that seems a little bit of a stretch, man. Like false gods out of the pigs. You're trying to call them pagans. Like don't, that seems like you're giving these guys a bad rap. No, I don't think so. Cause look how they react. They love their pigs more than the Savior. Let's take a look in verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. There's that verse again, or that phrase again. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Listen, Jesus changes people. The reason that we attempt to the best of our ability by the grace of God to be a gospel-centered church is because the thing that changes people is not new philosophies of life. It's not medicines that are going to eventually give him the ability to get up on his two feet. Like Those are not the things that change people. It's Jesus that changes people, and Jesus really changes people. Just look at the, the difference in this guy from the beginning of the story until the end of the story. In verse 27, it says, this man had many demons. In verse 35, the demons had gone away from the man. Verse 27, he had worn no clothes. Verse 35, he was clothed. Verse 27, he did not live in a house, but in tombs. Verse 39, Jesus is going to tell him, return to your home. Verse 28, he fell down before him and shouting. That's in anguish. Verse 35, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Verse 29, the demon seized him and he was out of control. Verse 35, he is in his right mind. The, the word, when the text says, when these people, it says, these people told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Remember something, Luke is a physician. The author of this is a physician, and the word he uses for healed is a holistic thing. It's not just like, uh, my arm got better. It's, my life has been made whole. He's completely changed. And this is why we have to lead people to Jesus. This is why the guy who is addicted to pornography, he needs more than covenant eyes on his computer and accountability among brothers. He needs Jesus. Because there's demons behind this stuff. I mean, the person that's addicted to drugs needs more than accountability in a treatment program. He needs Jesus. And so we as a church have to understand, for those who are afflicted and even for raising our children, don't just give them rules and mindsets and morals and medicine. Give them Jesus. Because only Jesus can set them free from this kind of bondage. Only Jesus is the one who came to set us free from the affliction of Satan. So we give them Jesus first. Other things, yeah, those might be great to have all of those kind of things, but it doesn't matter if you have all that stuff if you don't have Jesus, it's still temporary. So give them Jesus. This is why we lead people to Jesus. But here they are, they see this. And I mean, imagine, it's quite a change. He's got a reputation, right? And they're like, hey, you know the crazy guy? No, 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 the crazy guy. He's in seminary now. Like, imagine the change. Like, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's learning. Who knows what questions he's got now. They walk down there. The dude that was clothed, now he's, like, all shaven. The Duck Dynasty beard's gone. He's got some good clothes on. Like, he's looking normal, and he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, totally calm. 
Like these people are looking at this like, what in the world happened? And here we see the same phrase that the apostles used on the boat, right? They were afraid. What manner of man is this? That the demons obey him. So what's their response going to be? Verse 38. Excuse me, verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got in the boat and returned. They loved their pigs more than their savior. What they saw rocked them. And they're like, we don't need this here. We don't need this kind of disturbance. We've heard about the gatherings on the other side of the shore over there. That news is getting around. Now this has happened. Now you cost us our whole herd of pigs. Following Jesus is apparently going to cost us our livelihood. And I don't even know what to make of this guy right here. Hey, just get out of here. Just go. And in this case right here, remember Luke is going to go on to write the book of Acts as well. This is going to be a real foreshadowing of how the gospel starts going out into Gentile territory and being rejected in many places by Gentiles saying, we will not have this man rule over us. He's rejected. And it says the whole town came together and the people from around the town, like everybody's there and they're like, get out of here. She's like, okay, I'll go. But he doesn't give up on him because look at verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You know what's amazing? This is Jesus' first sent missionary. It's the first one. And he's giving him the great commission that he's going to give the church in the book of Acts. It's like, go. Think about that. Now, it's quite a thing to say to the guy, because he's probably thinking, like, I want to come with you for lots of reasons. Number one, you just healed me and made me whole. I know who you are. All that stuff, true. Also, kind of have a reputation in this town right here. Not sure how it's going to go for me. I might as well get out of here anyway. Please, Jesus, let me come with you. And that's understandable and admirable. But look what Jesus says. No, no, to a city that is completely rejecting him. He's like, no, no, no. They need to know. They need to know who I am. So you go. Go back to your home. Go tell people who I am. Go tell people what I did in your life. Go tell people how I set you free. They need to know. And then through whatever nervousness he may have had or not, he goes. It says he went throughout the whole city proclaiming what Jesus had done for him. And he's the first missionary. You know, not that long ago, archaeologists uncovered a church in that city. Who knows? Was it him? Was it one of his family members down the line? Don't know. But we know the gospel got there. And the gospel took root in some places. And God did some amazing things. He set more people free than just that guy. Because think about this, church. Here's all the people on the shores of the the lake. Here's the guy that was crazy and he just got freed by Jesus. And he's sitting there in his right mind. And the people of the city look at this and they're like, no, you get out of here. Let me ask you. Who's in bondage now? Who's the prisoner now in the story? And they don't even know it. They have no idea. But Jesus says, I'm the one who came to proclaim liberty to the captives. And dude, come here. We don't know his name. I wish we did. But dude, come here. I'm going to give you a little inside scoop. These guys aren't going to get their great commission till later because they, they need more training. But you, you go. And you go 
this is what's going to happen, man. We're going we're to send the gospel everywhere. You're going to be my witness. And you're going to go into the city, and you're going to proclaim the gospel. Church, can I just tell you something? As we watch certain elements of our own culture, and even historically, as the church has watched elements of its culture turn against Christianity and begin to oppose Jesus in public forums, in schools, in whatever, so often... The response to the church when that happens has been to withdraw. All right? If you're taking Jesus out of the schools, and I I know I I should do this carefully because we do meet in a Christian school, but let's just make our own, we'll make Christian institutions and we won't be over there. We'll withdraw from this, we'll withdraw from this, we'll to become insular. Then I want nothing to do with you. And half the time we do that, not even so much has anything to do with the Bible or the gospel. A lot of times it's just our own pride. Like someone rejected us and we're just mad, so forget them. But God, first of all, he relentlessly pursues. He pursues. And this is our calling. I I have this leadership cohort that I meet with once a month with these like 11 guys um, from here at the church. And and we get together and we really chew on some some deep things and and think about mission and all this stuff. We were talking about it this week and we were reading in 1 Corinthians, or in 2 Corinthians, excuse me, Paul talks about this relentless pursuing of others for the gospel. And we're like, so put some meat on that for our context even today. What does that look like for us? And we're talking about that just as individuals, like pursuing people and all these kind of things. And this one guy brought up, he was like, hey, man, I, you know, that's hard because at a certain point we kind of have to back off just a little bit because we'll just annoy him and all this stuff. And he's kind of making this case, which we do understand that's true. Like we get that. But then one of the guys on the other side of the room uh, piped up and he goes, hey, how many times did it take for you? He's like, aren't you glad God didn't give up on you? How many times did it take for you to hear it? And he goes, actually quite a few. (laughs) And then you go, that's right. Church, this is our job. Our job is to carry the hope of the gospel into the lost world that's out there and proclaim the reality that Jesus is real and can set them free from all the things. Because think about it, man, the world out there is looking for help in all these areas. Like, go to the bookstore, like the biggest section in the whole bookstore, self-help. How do I free myself of all these things that I'm dealing with? Talk to any counselor out there. They're all booked up for months because people need help. Recovery programs, you can't get beds in recovery programs half the time because they're all full. But what they need is Jesus, not a book. And we have him. And Jesus' method of grace to set people free in the world around us today is us. So here's the truth. You are the demoniac from this story. Whether you realize it or not, you might not have had 5,000 demons throwing you on the ground, running around naked in the cemetery, but you were captive. The Bible says we were slaves to sin and that Jesus came and has set us free. And that now he has given us at the end of Luke, at the end of Mark, at the end of John, at the end of, at the beginning of Acts, at the end of Matthew, over and over and over. Now go be my witnesses and proclaim the good news of what I have done in your life to those who need it. Yeah, but they're not going to like me. Pursue. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't give up on you? Pursue, church. Go share the gospel. Yeah, but they're going to reject me. Well, don't take it personally. Jesus even told his disciples, they're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. You just be faithful. That's what we need to do, church. Amen? 
But we're going to take an opportunity right now for just a couple minutes. Sam's going to come up here and do one song and just take opportunity to, to just kind of think about this, to reflect and to respond to God in this time. Some of you, your response during this time, is, I, I hope, will be just passionate worship. Because you realize that this is a story about you. And you realize what you've been set free from. And you can't but worship the Savior who died and gave all so that you could be free. So during this time, I urge you, by the Spirit of God, worship him in this song. Don't miss a chance to do that. Some of you need to do some reflecting from a response time and just go, okay, been hearing this for a while now. These heritage guys keep talking about mission and spreading the gospel. Dang it, I guess it's not going away. So what do I do? Lord, how do I be like this guy? I mean, imagine he had to be nervous going in there, right? With a reputation like that and a whole city that just opposed Jesus. But it says he went and he proclaimed it throughout the whole city, it says. It's like, okay, we have the spirit of God now. The Holy Spirit hadn't even come yet, but we have the spirit of God. So maybe this is a response time for you to say, Lord, help me be serious about this thing. Who am I supposed to talk to? And how do I do it this week and not let just another church service go by where I convince myself I'm somehow doing ministry, but I'm really not. How do I spread the gospel effectively and Lord help me overcome my fears? And then for others of you, your response time is to just give up and come to Jesus. Repent of your religion Repent of that belief that because you go to church and have a Bible and went to camp one day and that, that you're all covered, but you know that your life in no way is in any way dependent on Jesus and in no way are you following him. You've never given your life to him. Give your heart to Jesus. Repent of your paganism. Repent of your, your religion. Repent of all of these things and come to the Savior who can set you free. And, and let me just say too, like I'm gonna be right over here. Some other elders will be around let me just tell you, one of the things you might have to repent of is even in this moment, the pride that wants to keep you from coming up here. Because do you know what that is? That is Satan saying, I want to keep him in chains. So rebuke him. Repent of that. Don't let pride hold you. Come to Jesus and be set free. Amen. Lord, will you just move in this time? May your spirit speak, Lord. May you set people free. May you do ministry. May you receive worship for the goodness and grace that you've poured out on us. And Lord, even in this time, may your church sing of your goodness for you are the one who came to set us free. And we are so thankful for the good news of your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.